You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. On September 1st, Taiwan's military shot down a Chinese civilian drone that flew near Jimen. In this episode of Talking Taiwan, I speak with Eric Chen about what led up to this incident. China's increased gray zone tactics towards Taiwan since U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan in early August and other news related to Taiwan's military, such as the Taiwan Policy Act and UMC founder Robert Tsao's donation for civil defense in Taiwan. Eric Chan is a non-resident research fellow at the Global Taiwan Institute, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank dedicated to policy research on Taiwan and its people. He is also a senior air power strategist with the U.S. Air Force, where he provides the U.S. Air Force with expertise on the People's Republic of China's military capabilities, political leadership, and strategic culture. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATOA was founded in 1988, and its mission is, one, to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity, Two, to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality. Three, to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs. Four, to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan. Five, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NADWA, visit their website www.natwa.com. Without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thank you for having me. I know that you do a lot of commentary on military strategy, especially when it applies to Taiwan. There's been a lot going on. And so I wanted to have you on to comment about what's going on in the strait. Let's start by talking about how China's gray zone tactics with Taiwan have changed recently, especially, I understand there's been a lot of changes since Nancy Pelosi visited. Yeah, certainly. So uh, China's strategy all along has been to uh, coerce and intimidate uh, Taiwan. And uh, now that the PLA has gotten stronger over uh, the last uh, five or 10 years, they've been really chomping at the bit to test out new ways of coercion. And gray zone uh, warfare is a way for them to try to coerce Taiwan, uh, hopefully without them escalating into open warfare or something that would uh, lead to, you know, American intervention. So uh, the way that these gray zone tactics have changed over the uh, years has been, you know, an increase in things like uh, aircraft flying. Uh, It's also changed where the aircraft have flown to. Uh, Before, they used to fly into uh, Taiwan's air defense identification zone, a little bit less uh, less risk. Uh, These days now, they're flying across the straight median line just to demonstrate to the world that they don't recognize that this type of line exists. And of course, finally, uh, now they're doing exercises that replicate elements of a blockade against Taiwan, and uh, they're using uh, drones. Uh, to try to demonstrate some of their uh, new military technology. 
Right. And so should we be concerned about this? What dangers do the drones pose and what capabilities do they actually have? So uh, I don't think anybody should be concerned over any one individual activity. But collectively, uh, there should be some concern just because it's trying to show that the PRC is looking for new sticks to use against Taiwan. And I mean this as in that China used to look for both carrots and sticks, right? Carrots to persuade the Taiwan people that unification uh, was a good deal and sticks to scare away what they would call uh, the separatists. But now uh, they don't see any difference and they're just looking for new ways to intimidate Taiwan. Uh, the use of drones now, uh, they're a relatively cheap way for any adversary to push the envelope because they're considered unmanned. Uh, you know, the, the idea is that they pose less of an escalatory threat. They can also pose a persistent threat because they don't need to go back uh, home anytime soon. They can just keep on flying around. So by, by putting uh, more drones into the air against Taiwan, they're hoping uh, to exhaust the Taiwan's air force into you know, responses against these type of drones. And is there any kind of intelligence or information that can be collected by these drones? Uh, yes. In fact, um, drones were originally designed really to uh, collect, you know, all sorts of information and intelligence, things such like, um, you know, uh, terrain picture uh, through the use of radar, you know, thermal detection and a more. Right. So they help uh, military planners and tacticians develop uh, targeting coordinates. Right. As we see in the Russia and Ukraine war. Uh, sometimes drones can be used as uh, artillery or rocket spotters. Uh, and of course, some drones can also fire and drop weaponry themselves. And then with things called uh, loitering munitions, sometimes they are the weapon. So because they're uh, quiet, they can fly at low levels and they can escape detection. Uh, it, it's a very convenient platform uh, to test uh, the military systems of you know the opposing country can we talk a little bit more in detail what's happened with the recent drones like when did they start doing this activity how many drones have flown over and then about the one most recently that military in taiwan actually had to shoot down right so we saw the drones uh start flying over uh jingmen around uh, early august right and then since then about 30 unarmed drones have flown over jingmen uh, but also very recently, um, you know, some actual military drones uh, with a far higher capability crossed the Taiwan Strait median line uh, just this week. So uh, as you can see, they're slowly escalating, um, you know, the, the number of drones as well as uh, the type of flyovers that they're doing. Now, the drones that flew, flew over Jingmen, uh, they look like uh, civilian drones, but of course, with the Chinese system, it's always a very gray line uh, when it comes to, you know, hey, who's actually flying these drones? Um, maybe they're civilian, maybe they're, you know, um, you know, military and civilian close. Nobody knows, right? As long as you're using these civilian model drones, they have uh, some sort of what we call plausible deniability. So uh, in this way, you can see China is starting to test out the limits of uh, escalation. They want to see how the Taiwan military will respond. So uh, that shoot down 
on the 1st of September. Uh, that was a test for the uh, Taiwan's military as well, just to see how much they can push the Taiwan military until something happens. And, um, you know, the Taiwan military did respond by their rules of engagement, which now allow for shoot downs of uh, drones that enter into Taiwan's airspace. Right. So was there some kind of a protocol, like they gave them a warning? From what I understood, they gave them some kind of warning and asked them to leave or whatever the case was, and they didn't. So then after informing them, then they shot down the drone. Right. So uh, a lot of this was developed after um, there was a, a PRC media article about um, civilian drones flying over Jingmen and the Taiwanese response, the Taiwanese soldiers there responded by throwing rocks, right? So uh, the Chinese media played this up a lot. You know, they wanted to show, hey, look how advanced uh, the Chinese military is and look how, you know, badly equipped uh, Taiwan is, look how confused they are, right? So afterwards, because there is a political outcry in Taiwan itself, you know, um, the, the military, the Taiwan military, uh, made it very clear that uh, they now have rules of engagement. It includes things like, you know, verbal warnings, and then afterwards, you know, firing flares to warn uh, the drones to get out of the area. And then finally, you know, authorizing uh, shoot downs. And then uh, now, as I understand it, um, Taiwan's military is looking at installing anti-drone uh, systems, electronic warfare systems, uh, that won't be quite as escalatory as actually firing live rounds uh, to these type of drones. So we see a lot of uh, back and forth between the two sides as China tests out uh, what we call an escalation ladder just to see uh, what would tick off uh, Taiwan's military. Can you talk about what's the difference between civilian and military drones? Sure. And the civilian drones, you know, they're like the, you know, type of, you know, hobby drones that you can find on, you know, Amazon or something, right? So these type of drones, they don't, uh, they can't really last uh, very long. And of course, they're not very well uh, protected. So even a very basic, you know, military system would be able to fry the electronics on these type of uh, military drones, right? And they're not really equipped with real sensors other than cameras. And uh, they're certainly not gonna be equipped with weapons. Though we see in the Ukraine war, you know, you, in Ukraine's desperation, they have rigged a bunch of uh, civilian drones to be able to carry, you know, little grenades, right? So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there, it's, not, it's not very professional when it comes down to actual, you know, military operational use. Now, of course, with military drones, by definition, uh, these are things are far better armored. They, they'll last longer in the air. And of course, they'll have uh, specific sensors, much more powerful sensors uh, that can pick up on all sorts of intelligence. So um, the, the Chinese have used those type of drones in their median line crossings, not really for the ones that uh, face Jingmen. And now for a short break. Hello listeners, we're going to be experimenting with some shorter form content, under 20 minutes long, and we'd like to hear from you. Would you like to listen to shorter episodes? What would you like to hear more of or less of? Email us at podcast at talkingtaiwan.com. We also have a special announcement for all of our donors, past, present, and future. 
We're giving all of our donors exclusive first listening access to upcoming interviews with Karen Lynn, Democratic candidate for Justice of the Civil Court in Queens, New York. Chin Chi Yang, a multidisciplinary artist who was recently inducted into the New York Foundation for the Arts Hall of Fame. Michelle Kuo, an attorney, activist, and author of Reading with Patrick, which is a runner-up for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Goddard Riverside Stefan Russo Book Prize for Social Justice. Ed Lin, author of Death Doesn't Forget, and Joe Henley, author of Migrante. If you want exclusive access to these episodes and more, support Talking Taiwan by making a contribution to our GoFundMe campaign. We are so grateful for our growing listenership and all the support that we've been receiving. Now, back to the episode. Is there any other specific ways in which China's actions towards Taiwan changed after Pelosi's visit and the impact on Taiwan? I've heard various things saying that what they did was effectively a blockade. It affected flights and transportation around the island, but was it a blockade and what actually constitutes a blockade? So yes, there was a lot of talk about this being, you know, the fourth Taiwan Straits crisis. Uh, I wouldn't go quite so far, right? The overall impact was relatively minor precisely because uh, the Chinese fear that anything that would really disrupt Taiwan's economy and a blockade would really disrupt Taiwan's military would also have huge ripple effects on the PRC economy itself. And she just doesn't want that in you know the run-up to uh, the party congress that's going to happen in October. He wants China to be you know, relatively peaceful, prosperous. He wants to show stability. Yes, he wants to show Chinese strength, but he can do that without you know, actually disrupting his own economy in the process. So, yeah, the exercises that were uh, done, those naval exercises, the rocket firings, they don't really constitute a blockade by military terms, right? A blockade in military terms would mean that uh, China would have to isolate Taiwan's ports and airports and also be able to block the entry and exit from all those ports. It would also mean that, you know, the military would have to put into place uh, certain assets to prevent the blockade from being broken, either by Taiwan or by some sort of outside party. So um, none of the exercises that they did uh, really reflected this. Uh, yes, they did replicate elements of a blockade. Uh, and of course, the, uh, this was much more aggressive and much bigger than anything that they've done in the past. But it didn't really constitute uh, what we would call in the military a blockade. And uh, ultimately, uh, you know, there were some disruptions, but it was relatively minor. Uh, shipping, you know, shipping was inconvenienced, but it wasn't stopped. So, no, in the end, it wasn't a blockade. It was meant to intimidate, but the Taiwan people wasn't really intimidated. Right. And what do you think that this tells you about China's military capability? Uh, so what, what it tells me is that uh, they've developed some sort of capability for being able to uh, do uh, much longer exercises. And that's that's sort of an important data point for us in the U.S. military to understand as well. Uh, just seeing how long that they can you know, just hang out in the Taiwan Strait or around Taiwan itself. Right. Uh, they're, they're now able to project power uh, longer uh, than uh, they used to do. And they 
did it relatively professionally uh, in military terms. Uh, they didn't get, get involved in uh, any accidents. Um, there was a lot of fears uh, beforehand that, you know, there might be some sort of accident or uh, some sort of, you know, like some military pilot uh, doing dangerous uh, moves like they did back in 2001. Uh, but we didn't really see that in this case. It was all very carefully controlled, uh, you know, statement by the PLA. I understand that Beijing has recently released a white paper, One China, Two Systems. How do you think we should interpret that paper? So very much along the same lines as uh, these type of exercises, right? This was the first paper uh, issued on what the Chinese call the Taiwan question since Xi Jinping took power. Uh, it's notable just because it omitted some of the promises that were made in a previous paper that was written back in 1993, right? And in that paper, it promised that Taiwan uh, could have its own administrative legislative and judicial institutions, and it could run its own democratic system and its own military and economic affairs. And it could all do this without uh, the Chinese military or the Chinese government being present on the island. And this new paper uh, doesn't include any of these promises. So that's a pretty big deal, right? I mean, we all know that even if she had made those promises, no one would really believe it just because we've seen in the case of Hong Kong, how quickly Chinese promises uh, were sort of just swept aside. But it's also notable just that they didn't bother making these promises in the first place. So it's not really a paper that's meant to persuade Taiwan and the Taiwanese people that unification is a good thing. It just sort of treats unification like it's an inevitability, right? And they want to make it clear that uh, Beijing feels that its position is a lot stronger than where it was in 1993. So ultimately, uh, this paper is written and designed to be rejected by Taiwan. And all of this was planned out by the party because now they, they, they can use the rejection by Taiwan as an excuse to roll out even harder line policies as part of this upcoming party Congress. It seems that the people in Taiwan have not been intimidated by this. And unfortunately, they're so used to this by now because this has been going on so long, this behavior by China. So I'm curious to know about the other side, if you know how it's possibly affected people in China. In other words, how is the stepping up of China's military tactics, uh, their reactions to Pelosi's visit and the white paper, how has that possibly affected the public perception of the people in China? I think uh, the funny thing is, as far as we can tell, you know, the PRC citizens and certainly the PRC netizens, they weren't exactly impressed by the PLA response uh, to Pelosi's visit, right? They had been so psyched up by uh, the previous propaganda that they were under some sort of impression that the PLA was actually going to shoot down uh, Pelosi's plane, right? That would start a third world war. But, you know, they were under the impression that, you know, the PLA could, you know, do all this type of stuff, right? So uh, when that didn't happen, obviously they were very upset, but it also shows that this whole thing, it was all carefully managed, it wasn't really for the sake of the Chinese domestic populace, right? But it's really meant to intimidate Taiwan, Japan, uh, lesser extent, the Philippines. It's meant for more of a foreign audience. 
and uh, also for um, the Chinese elite audience, right? They're trying to show, she's trying to show strength prior to this party Congress. But as for the domestic populace, you know, she doesn't really care that much. She she just wants to make sure they're not too angry about the way things turned out. But that is actually kind of disturbing that they actually expected or they would have been more impressed if they had shot down Pelosi's plane, right? I mean, (laughs) that's kind of concerning to me. I'm very, very much so. I mean, it's, you know, people who, you know, demand war the very loudest. But of course, if there's a war, uh, they would certainly suffer. But it's something that, you know, they, I guess they just don't think too much about. Okay. I'm also curious to know what your thoughts are on the recent news about how the founder of UMC, Robert Tsao, has made a donation for civil defense. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, really admirable that um, people on Taiwan uh, would, are finally, you know, really looking at, you know, the idea that, you know, defending their country is a job for, you know, everybody, every, every citizen on Taiwan. And uh, for that type of donation to be made, that that's a great symbol that, you know, um, he really cares and uh, he really thinks that it's important for uh, Taiwan's people, not just Taiwan's military, to be able to defend uh, Taiwan. Uh, as we saw with Ukraine, it's been uh, the the way that the people react um, to, you know, aggression is also a very important symbol uh, against, you know, the would-be aggressor. Uh, just like Putin didn't expect the Ukrainian people uh, to fight back. It, this type of thing is a good symbol. And I hope, um, you know, this is the type of thing that uh, Xi Jinping will worry about, that, you know, in any sort of invasion, uh, he will find himself stuck in a terrible quagmire because the Taiwan people are ready to defend their country. Right. And the last thing I want to ask you about was, I've been hearing about the Taiwan Policy Act. Can you comment a little bit about that? Because that would be quite a major change if it passes and different from what we have now, the Taiwan Relations Act. Yeah, certainly. So uh, there's uh, multiple uh, aspects to the Taiwan Policy Act that make it such a big deal. Uh, It's passed out of the Foreign Policy Committee in the Senate. So um, it's going to go to the open floor of the Senate for a debate and for a vote. And I'm sure uh, the Biden administration will look for input on uh, the Taiwan Policy Act. But uh, this type of thing would essentially remake uh, large elements of the current uh, Taiwan Relations Act. You know, starting with the military, I think the, the biggest change here uh, would be that the U.S. would be essentially uh, giving uh, weapons to Taiwan, not selling weapons to Taiwan, but just giving weapons to Taiwan uh, for Taiwan's defense. And that's a big deal simply because, um, you know, the Taiwan's economy uh, and defense budget while growing in size just simply can't compare in scale to that of, you know, China and the the defense budget of China. So uh, this will certainly help uh, even out the table a little bit. Uh, Policy-wise, it does make it, uh, you know, very clear that, you know, while the overall, you know, the U.S., you know, what we call strategic ambiguity hasn't changed, it also makes it very clear that, um, you know, to China that any sort of aggression uh, would certainly lead to a a pretty severe response uh, by the United States. So uh, in this case... um, hopefully increasing deterrence 
both through the military and also through policy. So this is a very, very big deal. And um, it's a good step in you know, America basically demonstrating the importance of um, democratic uh, values and uh, the extent to which you know, the U.S. is willing to defend those values. Is there anything else that you'd like to share that we haven't covered? Just like to say that, you know, while things do look tense now, unfortunately, it looks like, you know, things will probably get even worse in in the immediate future. Uh, With the Taiwan Policy Act, I certainly expect, you know, a level of fireworks uh, from Beijing to, you know, um, as they demonstrate how uh, upset they are by that. Um, but, you know, on the more optimistic side, I think uh, a number of, um, you know, U.S. military leaders have commented that um, they, they think that, you know, China doesn't view their military as ready for a war just yet. And uh, they say, hey, you know, 2027 might be like the, the timeline where uh, they think that, um, you know, the, the type of deadline that Xi Jinping wants to put on the military to be uh, ready for war. So I guess uh, sort of optimistically, I guess, um, you know, perhaps uh, no, no war coming, even though there's going to be a lot of tension in, in the next few years. But uh, certainly I think... Um, the more Taiwan can prepare itself, can you know, be seen as defending itself, uh, hopefully um, that terrible day will never come. Okay, well, I want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise and being a guest on Talking Taiwan. Thank you very much for having me. I've been speaking with Eric Chan, a non-resident research fellow at the Global Taiwan Institute, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank dedicated to policy research on Taiwan and its people. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATOA was founded in 1988 to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity, to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality, to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATWA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Now it's time for you to show us some love. We just found out that you can rate us on Spotify. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com. 